Right, so it is our last uh, series of Mark. Last autumn, we spent 12 weeks going through the first eight chapters of Mark. And uh, this autumn, we spent, I think this is the 13th series of this, these last eight chapters. And uh, now we're at the end. And what we get at the end of Mark's biography is like that we're clueless. Like, do you see the way that ended? They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid, full stop. Uh, not really a high note for, for human beings in Mark's world. And uh, I think really what this shows is that we don't understand very much that goes on in our world, even at a fundamental level. At a very kind of fundamental level, we don't really understand very much. Take science, for example. Science doesn't really understand what matter is. Like, what makes a thing a thing? Like, what makes this stand a thing? Like, they can describe some parts of it. They can explain even less of that, but they don't really actually get what matter is. I mean, dark matter is a thing that they know exists. They can only measure its effects. They don't even know what dark matter is, let alone, like, what matter is. And so that, I think, if it's a fundamental building block of this world, right, matter, and not understanding that should tell us maybe something about ourselves. But... Clever, so we have some clever scientists who are working on that and still kind of are kind of getting it, but kind of there's a lot more that, that we don't know about it. But I don't need like science to tell me that I don't know it all. Case in point for me is Kenny Loggins' Highway to the Danger Zone, which I, if you've ever seen Top Gun, anyone seen Top Gun? That's like an old movie now. It was one person, right. Um, so Top Gun is a movie with Tom Cruise, stars Maverick, this like crazy uh, fighter pilot and he has Goose who's like his, his co-pilot there's a really weird beach volleyball scene that's just like really strange if you've seen it you know what I'm talking about but the main song for Top Gun was a song by Kenny Loggins Highway to the Danger Zone I won't play it for you because it's not that great but um, for a long time for a very long time for an embarrassingly long time for like even years into my marriage long time I thought this song was called Halfway to the Danger Zone and so when you sing halfway, it sounds like highway, halfway to the danger like, yeah, half. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, if you're halfway to the danger zone, that's pretty scary. You're halfway there. Like, you, you don't want to go into the danger zone. Like, that would be really bad. Like, you couldn't even sing after that. So I thought halfway to the danger zone is pretty much it. Come to find out, it's not halfway to the danger zone. It's highway to the danger zone. Look, I didn't need, I, I didn't understand the lyrics to a Top Gun song. I don't need to be told that I don't understand at all. I don't need like clever scientists saying, we don't really understand completely what matter is for me to be like, huh, I wonder if humans don't understand all that there is to life. Like I don't get lyrics to a very easy to understand kind of song. Like that's how thick we are. I think, uh, so I have a problem. Clever scientists have a problem. But what about depths that are more difficult to understand than matter or Kenny Loggins? Like our souls. How much do we understand about that? It's, it's a mystery. It's a complete mystery. And in the most important areas of our lives, the most fundamental parts of who we are, that's where we're most afraid. That's where we're least adequate. That's where we have the least understanding. Jeremiah 17, 9, um, written years and years before Jesus, says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who could understand it? Like the heart is beyond understanding. Also, the heart is beyond cure. And it's because of that truth in Jeremiah 17 that Jesus came to earth that he died in, in our place, and that he resurrected himself. Because the this, this story of Jesus being alive, the resurrection, is a story of how God does what we can't, how he handles the death we couldn't bear, how he gives us a life that we don't understand, and how he works in us despite the fear that we have in telling others about it. So this story is about how we can't, but how God does. 
And we, we're going to see that a lot. <laughs> and we've seen a lot in Mark. That's kind of how Mark works. We see that a lot in chapter 16 here. We can't understand, but God gives life to us. We're fearful, but God calms us. We're inadequate, but God works. We are beyond cure ourselves. We can't, but God does. And so in these eight verses, kind of three things um, that we'll focus in on, what God is, is saying in these verses here is, one, that we can't handle death, we don't understand life, and we're too fearful to tell anyone about either of those things. So because Jesus is alive, he handles a death that we couldn't bear. So we'll start first with Jesus handling the death that we can't bear. We can't handle death. So we have Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and Salome. But Mary, the other Mary and Salome were both uh, mothers of two of the disciples. They get to the tomb where Jesus is early on. Um, it's customary to add perfumes to a dead body. It's kind of like what you do every time. And they look to themselves as they're on the way, they say, who's going to roll this stone away? Oh, when we get to that tomb, there's going to be, you know, Jesus is going to be dead. So um, who's going to, which one of us is going to roll away this tomb? They were not expecting Jesus to be alive. It was not like, oh, I wonder if what Jesus said was going to be, was going was to come true. That was not a part of their experience. They're like, yeah, Jesus is dead. Let's make, let's do what we do for dead bodies. In fact, they didn't even know how the tomb was sealed up. They didn't know there was a Roman guard posted there. They didn't know that the Romans sealed off the, t- the, the tomb, the, the, the stone. They didn't know that actually the stone, as heavy as it is to begin with, had a groove cut in the ground. So when the stone was rolled into the groove, it was like really difficult to get the stone out of it. They had no idea. They're just like, who's going to remove that stone? Oh, as if it's like a normal thing to do. They wouldn't have been able to. And so not even knowing how difficult it was to move the stone, they're just asking each other. And I think this is a fantastic metaphor here. What a great metaphor this is for us, I think. Because the tomb, obviously, is a symbol for death. It's where dead bodies go. It's where Jesus' dead body was laid. And Jesus died because we can't handle death ourselves. These women would not have been able to move that stone any more than they would have been able to handle death. And they're looking to each other like, who is going to have the power to move this stone? It's asking, who's going to have the power to handle death? We can't. We can't handle it. We don't like to think about it. We don't talk about it, that's for sure. I'm convinced this is why we love to be distracted because we all moan about like our phones and our schedules and how life is so busy and we can't do the things we really want to do. But a system is set up to deliver the things that we want it to. Like who set up those, that business? Who set up our phone? Like we've done all this ourselves. I think we try and extend our lives as much as possible in an unconscious and maybe sometimes conscious way to block out the reality that we're all going to die and none of us can control that. Every other part of our lives offers us control over everything. Death is not something we have any control of, and it's more important than all those other things. And no, amazing, no matter how amazing you are on earth, how comfortable you make your life, how meaningful your life is, how many friends you have, and the, the people who love you, you are going to die. And even for the people who love us the most, who help us the most in the face of death, they aren't any help. I mean, there's nobody in my life who has done more to help me or to love me than Christina. But when she dies, what help is that going to be for me? Or if I die first, which is the plan for me to die first, that way I don't have to deal with grieving. I'm going to let, let you deal with all that. We talked about that even today, this week. Oh, I'll die first. Does that sound okay? <laughs> so when I die first <laughs> and she sees me in that casket, how is she going to help me? She can't. There's no way. As much as she loves, it's not a lack of love. It's not a lack of want just a lack of power because we have no power over death. None of us can bear it. So as we look amongst ourselves and we ask ourselves, who is going to handle this heavy stone of death? We have to give up and say, none of us. No amount of fulfillment in your job, 
no amount of happy family or friends, no amount of money, death strips us of all of that. And what are we left with by ourselves? We can't handle death. Our local um, football club is uh, West Isbury and Charlton. I don't know if you've ever been to one of their matches. Um, there's their little insignia um, seal there. Um, they play in the Northwest Counties Football League, which is a non-professional league. That's this one here. Like this is like the uh, the tree of like of leagues. Here we go. Here, I mean, they're not they're not professional. In fact, you have to go to like the fifth level, I think, before it even becomes an actual professional league. So um, they're nine tiers away from the Premier League, all the way at the top. That's like Man City, United, Liverpool. Pick your favorite team. I, I can't pick one here. I have to remain neutral for the purposes of surviving this message. Um, but you say you have your top tier Premier League team in your head. They come down to Brookburn Road in Trollton to go play. And this Premier League rocks up against West Is and Trollton to play a match. Well, how do you think that's going to turn out? They would be completely dominated. I mean, West Isbury and Trollton lost to Ashton Town. Do you think they're going to hold their own against Manchester United? I don't think so. They're just going to be com- they're completely out of their league to be able to play against a, a massive uh, 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 club like that. And this is us versus death. Us on our own, we're here, and death, death is like way up there. And in that game, we're completely destroyed. We're completely dominated. Now you might say, that's not really fair. Like, there's a reason why a Premier League team wouldn't come to Brookburn. Lots of reasons why. One, because it would be complete domination. Like, that's completely unfair. They don't have uh, the, the budget, the facilities, the coaching, or all the things that a United or a City or whoever else might have. And you'd be right. That is a completely unfair match. It's com- at a complete disadvantage in all possible ways. So if West Disbury and Trollton were to have any kind of fighting chance Someone would have to do something radical. Someone would have to um, do something really drastic. Someone would have to change the makeup completely of the team or even change the game itself in order for them to win. They have to change everything around. And that's exactly what Jesus' resurrection is. It's a complete game changer, if I could use a word that gets used all the time in popular culture. It's a complete game changer. And this is good news to all of us who left look to ourselves and are asking, who's gonna move this stone? Like Jesus is the one who changes all of that. We're out of our league. Jesus is the one who changes the game completely and allows us to triumph over something we should never triumph over. I mean, Jesus wanted to be with his people. He knew that death would keep them apart. And death was something that we, his people, couldn't handle on our own. So Jesus handles death on his own. He handles the death that we couldn't bear. So we don't have to pretend that death doesn't exist. We don't have to look to ourselves to fix it. In fact, in our most needy and most vulnerable state of death itself, we get to look to Jesus who takes it all on himself and frees us from the fear of death. So now it's not something that we have to bear. It's something that Jesus bore for us. And years before Jesus, Isaiah wrote this, of which Matthew quotes in his biography about Jesus. Uh, He writes this in Matthew 4, quoting Isaiah, says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And this is the reality for us because Jesus is alive. So Jesus handles a death that we couldn't bear. And also because Jesus is alive, he gives us a life that we don't understand. So we do not understand life. These women, these mothers, they're leading the way. They see this empty tomb. And in this empty tomb, there's an angel kind of described as a young man who's clothed in white. And it says they're alarmed. Maybe another way of putting this is a bit overwhelmed. Actually, if you look at the Greek, uh, the original Greek says they're completely and utterly freaked out of their minds. That's what it says in the ancient Greek 
there if you don't know about the Greek stuff. Um, so Jesus isn't there. They're expecting a dead body. There's nobody there. They're completely terrified. And they see this like angelic being like talking to them. Like what in the world? I was just talking to Will earlier. He's like, Will um, is teaching the kids about angels today. And he said, I looked up some pictures of like what angels could look like given the biblical descriptions. And they look completely scary and terrifying. And he said, one person said, maybe one reason why the humans are always scared when they're interacting with angels is because they look like something we've never ever seen before or accounted in our lives. So it's not only is, there, is Jesus not there, we're looking at something where like, I have no category for this being, like what, how, how do I even process life? So they're terrified. And the angel says, as angels always do when they interact with humans, don't be afraid. This, that's what the angels are always saying. You're looking, and the angel's like, so you're looking for Jesus, right? You're looking for oh, Jesus who was born in Nazareth? You're looking for the Jesus who was born in Nazareth who was crucified. That's the one you're looking for? Well, he's not here. He told you a few chapters ago that he's gonna go ahead of you in Galilee. He told you he wasn't gonna be here. Why are you looking for him here? Like go to Galilee where he's walking around. He's alive. Now the people encountering this event, there's no way to process this. And Jesus, of course, has been teaching all his disciples about this this particular day, but when they're experiencing it, it's just like there's no category to understand what's going on. And it calls into question the most fundamental thing they thought they knew about life. You're born, you live, you die, full stop. Nothing more, like that's it. But something has changed. I think we, though, we're just like the women in this story. By ourselves, we can't even begin to process what it means for Jesus to be alive. It's beyond our comprehension. And even when we decide to follow Jesus, we don't understand it all. We're, we're given a life and we kind of barely get what that life is all about. And probably, I don't know, in the last time you've interacted with the idea of Jesus being alive and it completely blowing your minds and completely blows up all the categories in your brain. Those things don't happen very often, maybe thankfully, because otherwise we're just kind of walking zombies, not knowing how to process life. But I think the more we interact with the reality that Jesus himself is alive, even now, and human body even now, I think the more we thought about, we would think about that and live towards that, our lives wouldn't be marked by worry. They'd be marked by wonder. So why does it matter that Jesus is resurrected? Well, there's lots of reasons why that would be. I mean, for us individually, the biggest thing is because his life is the one that he gives us. We get to have his life. Now, theologians don't really understand exactly all that goes on there. It's kind of like clever scientists trying to figure out all, that, all about matter. Like we don't kind of understand it all, but we know that this is a thing. And we know the chair is a thing. And we know that Jesus, through his power of his spirit, gives us his life. Romans 8, 11 says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What in the, like, do we even understand what that means? I think maybe 1%, maybe. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. And that means God who resurrected Jesus will work in us means whatever kind of fears we have, whatever kind of inadequacies we have, death did not stop Jesus from working. Our little problems with fear is not going to stop Jesus from working. That same power gets to be worked through us. And this is all because of the Holy Spirit. So proof of his work in our lives is the shift from worry to wonder. We shift from worry to wonder. By ourselves, we stay stuck in worry. Living in worry is living in control. 
It's having our eyes set on ourselves or set on others. It's only working within our own power, only involving ourselves in things that we can fully understand. We won't take risks if we're stuck in worry. We won't enjoy the relationship we have with the one who gives us new life. But living in wonder is life with with more open hands. It's having our eyes set on God, the one who's in control of those who are in control. When we feel weak, we still proceed and depend on the spirit to go and work ahead of us and be at work within us. When we get involved in things that we don't fully understand or have control over, we'll, take, we'll depend on the spirit to work as he does. We'll take risks in relationships and how we spend our time and how we spend um, all the things that God has given us. And we'll actually enjoy spending time with the one who gives us new life. We'll enjoy praying to him. We'll enjoy reading to him. We'll enjoy being with his people. Because the resurrected son of God Jesus himself is at work within you. By that power, but that power will lay dormant if we don't engage with it. It will only be potential, won't be actual. So we need Jesus's words to, of life, all these words in here to infiltrate our souls. Without it, we're only gonna believe we're as good as what we do. We're never outside of this. We're no, never going to hear about how good we are through what Jesus has done, how the father is delighting in who we are. Outside of these words, we will not hear those messages. Where else are we gonna hear it? And we need to pray as well to protest the obsession that we always have in relying on ourselves. Otherwise, we'll try and go through life in our own power. We need to tell Jesus that we don't have it all together and ask him to work through us. I mean, the solo Christian life, doing these things on our own is actually not very enjoyable. It's oppressive because it means we have to work up the, the power and the, um, the energy to do these things on our own and we're never meant to. We need other people to hold our hands up when they get tired. So when Jesus gives us a new life, we may not fully understand everything that it means, but it does allow us to shift from worry to wonder, not because we have more information, not because now we have this, like, um, uh, this, this passion that's boiled up, but because we have the Holy Spirit in us working. And ironically, the more we worry, the less we press into wonder. I, mean, I don't know if you're like, I'm like that all the time. The more I have a problem with something, the more I feel like life is difficult, the less likely I am to actually press into the things that will really actually change the areas that I need to be changed. I mean, when people are difficult, when you're tired, when your kids are hard, when the job's tough, when the schedule's demanding, what we need is more of God, not less. I mean, if we can't do this life by ourselves with all things being equal, when more is demanded by us through demanding circumstances, we need more of God, not less. And in my decade plus of being a pastor, it's kind of the way it goes. When people are living through difficult times, what we all do, all of us, we, what we do is we pull away from the church. But really what we need is more of the church. We may not think we need it. We'd be like, I, I don't need that. I need this other thing. But where else are we going to have other people speaking these words into us? We're not, we're not gonna find that anywhere else. Because this is where God is at work. It's where potential becomes actual. So let's not leave our spiritual lives to be dormant, taken out of the cupboard for guests and special occasions. When you're like the women in this story, when you're alarmed, when you're emotionally overwhelmed, when life just seems too much to manage, when everything's just uh, incredibly too much, and maybe you're there now, please do not pull away from the only thing worth leaning on in difficult times because we need more of him, not less. The fact that Jesus isn't dead, that he is now alive, combined with the fact that we get to get in on that, I mean, that is life-changing. That gives us a life beyond what we can even comprehend, thankfully, (laughs) because if it was something we can comprehend, it would be too small. So we can't handle death, but God gives it to us. We don't understand life, but God gives that to us. He also works in us despite our fear and telling others about it. 
So because Jesus is alive, he works in our fear. So we're too afraid to tell others about death. We're too afraid to tell others about life, but God chooses to work through us anyway. And one of the things we learn from the words of the messenger in, uh, in this, this chapter here in, verse six, in chapter 16 is how necessary and how important words are. We can have loads of experiences and that's great to have like, these experiences. Um, and sometimes they come in at times that we don't expect and we sometimes can't even explain them. But God's actions by themselves don't always give us all the information we need to live obedient lives. And so his actions must be attached to words. And these words help interpret what's going on. I mean, without the messenger's words, how would these women have interpreted this event? Like, uh, I guess someone stole the body or maybe just like this weird historical event that Jesus resurrected. They wouldn't understand like what the resurrection means or why that even matters for them. How would we understand what the resurrection was unless there were words being spoken and helping us to interpret this weird historical event? With words comes understanding. And this is how Jesus worked his entire life. So it's of course how he works in his resurrection. He has actions and he has words. He would do a miracle or a sign, a sign and he would explain what that was all about and explain about himself. Now, um, really briefly, I just want to get to this weird ending because you might have in your Bible, you might have verses, extra verses here in Mark 8. Um, so Mark's ending uh, is kind of abrupt, right? So uh, the very last words, this is how great the disciples are. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Yes, let's build the church on those people, right? So it's a very strange ending. And then you have lots of other, um, uh, other verses as well. Uh, verses nine through 20, we can say with confidence are actually not part of the Bible. You might have like a marking in your Bible, you should have some kind of thing saying like the earliest manuscripts we have don't contain these or it's not actually original or something like that. Super briefly, uh, you dive into why this is true and then if we can even trust the Bible at all, if this is true. So here's reasons why these last verses are probably not original. One is, um, and they're over here, the oldest manuscripts we have, the oldest Greek manuscripts we have do not have these verses. They do not have it at all. Also, the early church fathers, the people who led the church in the beginning, never referenced it at all. So that's a bit of a clue. If the earliest record we have of, of the gospel of Mark doesn't include these, it may not be original. We also have the extra um, verses here. The vocabulary and the style is very different to the rest of Mark. So that is like another clue. In itself, that's not a reason to question its authenticity, but with everything else, it's kind of another clue. It's also in verse nine, there's this abrupt subject change because they were afraid. And then verse nine, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, like, so it's like almost like changing time, changing subject. So kind of a different um, thing going on there in verse nine. And, verse, and the last one, Mary Magdalene, even though she's been introduced four times previously and spoken about four times previously, the way Mark talks about her is almost as if he's not even talked about her before. It would be very strange for Mark to do that. So I think all these things combined point, that, point to that these verses are, we can, I think, be quite confident these verses are actually not original to scripture. These are not scriptures outside of scripture. But... That brings up another question. So if these aren't original and not authentic, how, how can we be confident like the rest of the Bible is authentic or original? Like what's the deal with that? And it's a common objection that other people have. People who don't know the data of how the New Testament in particular is put together will just basically say, well, we don't really know what the authors really wrote because we don't really know. We also don't know what they really thought. Like this just is too muddled. But um, let's look at the data to see what kind of evidence we have out there to support that either way. Well, this is a um, really nerdy visualization of classic writings of antiquity. Yeah, if you're writing notes, make sure you copy this completely. Um, so we have um, 
uh, other like classic works of antiquity like Homer's Iliad, we have Pliny the Elder, we have Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we have Plato, all these other kind of things, all of which generally we like, this is probably what Plato wrote. Like we don't think, ooh, did Plato write all that stuff? What was Plato really thinking? Or did Homer, when he was writing, is this really Homer's writing or like what's the deal with all that? Um, so we, uh, that's on the right side. On the left side, we have all of the information related to the, um, to the New Testament. <laughs> And this two, the two most important things is the gap of time between when the author originally wrote and the earliest copy we have, and then how many copies we have of those early copies. If you have a lot of those things, it's, you know, pre, and, and a lot of the same things in a lot of different places in the world, it's probably proof this is original. So what, uh, let's just take the best example outside the Bible we have, which is Homer's Iliad. So there's uh, 1,700 copies plus of... Homer's Iliad out there in the world. And the gap between when Homer wrote and the earliest manuscript we have is about 400 years. So Homer wrote, and then at some point, whenever BC or whatever the thing is, and then the earliest copy we have of the Iliad was 400 years after when Homer wrote. So that's the best example of like the earliest like writing of antiquity we have outside of the Bible. Now compare that to the Bible, where the Bible has nearly 5,800 copies which is more than three times the amount Homer has. And the gap between original writing and the earliest copy we have is just 40 years. It's like 10% of the 400 years. In fact, the earliest copy of this fragment of the New Testament is in um, the Rylands Library here in Manchester, which is amazing. So you can go see the earliest part of the New Testament we have. So you don't really hear people saying, Plato, ah, I don't know, was Plato even real? What did he really think? What did he really write? We can't really tell because the gap is so big and there's so less copies. We hear that about the Bible, but that is like the least true you could thing about the Bible you could say. If you have a problem with the Bible, there's lots of other problems you can have. But the idea of, of it being authentic and it being um, like actually what the authors wrote is not a really good argument to make. There's no data in your favor for that. So does that help make, make a little bit of sense? So I think what we, and what we find in these last verses in Mark is it's not part of this big circle of stuff. It's not part of that nearly 6,000 copies of stuff. And we're like, yeah, that's probably not real. So as Christians, we're not trying to like shove all the things we think should be in the Bible. Like we're just like, well, what's the evidence? Well, that's there. If God's sovereign to work in death, surely he can like hold a Bible together, hold a book together. So I think we can, hopefully this helps, we can look to our Bible and actually be confident that it's authentic. It's not made up. Because it's not only this, this is, all these copies are spread through all different kinds of places in the world as well. It's not like all in one spot. So all these people have all these copies that are exactly the same in all these different places. Now, the reason why this is here, all these last verses, is because the scribes who originally copied these, which would be like hundreds of years past when Mark was writing, had the same problem with the ending as we did. They're like, Mark, I don't think this is really how you meant to end your gospel. Let me help you out a little bit. And what they did is they found all the other stories from how the other gospels ended and kind of harmonized them together. So it sounds really familiar, all the stuff in here, because they're taking from Matthew, mostly Matthew and saying, oh, this is probably all the stuff that other happened there. So um, in Mark's style of writing, though, as we've learned, it's actually quite fitting because Mark is just about the raw historical events. He's not out to make us look good. He's not out to like kind of inflate anything. He's like, this is just kind of how it was. Everybody's afraid, so no one said anything. The end, like next. The irony here is that when Jesus' followers are finally told to speak about Jesus, they say nothing to anyone. So if you feel like you've said nothing to anyone, you're in good company. 
Because of the fear that you have, you're like, I have never said anything to anyone. I've never said nothing to nobody. Like, this is how the early church started. This is where we all are. So, but something incredible in our lives can't be kept under wraps for long. In fact, if we keep the gospel covered in our lives with others, over time, we will keep it covered in ourselves and over time, we will lose touch with it. So in order to not do that, let's look at two things that prevent us from talking to others that we learn about in this story um, from Jesus. The first is fear, obviously. Like, this, we're, all in this, we're all in this boat for all these things. We're all together in this, okay? We all have this kind of fear. Just having experiences of God does not give us what we need to live a life aligned with God. We need words and we all have this fear and you know, that's fine. But living in it is not, we're not denying fear. We're denying the power of fear over our lives. It's not, it's not who we are anymore. The only way to not live out in this fear is to rely on the Holy Spirit. That's the only way we can get through this to give up relying on ourselves and rely on the Holy Spirit. Surely that's one of the most difficult things in our time. We have control over everything and we can pretty much be comfortable in everything. To intentionally walk into fear, that's weird. And it's not a muscle that we've worked for very much. We think we have it all together, not wanting to depend on anyone or anything. And then we wonder why we're racked with worry. We wonder why there's an epidemic of anxiety. So in, doing, in living this way and in doing so and in, in walking into fear, we get to embrace this reality that God dwells in us. For all those who follow Jesus, God dwells in us. But it's easy to overlook this insane kind of truth. We kind of treat him like an acquaintance or a housemate that we know like, oh, we know he has a job. He goes out, he does stuff, this Jesus, and he comes home and maybe we'll have dinner together or whatever. We might say a few words and don't really know exactly what he does, but I kind of like him being around me. Again, we're not, we're not denying fear but we are denying its power over us. So we have fear. We also have a complete lack of understanding. Another thing that stops us from telling others. And now on one hand, of course we don't understand because God's so beyond us, so beyond our understanding, like we should never actually fully expect to understand. We're unable to properly respond by ourselves, which means we have to look somewhere else other than ourselves. So we must be people who see the Bible as a rich resource for telling us for before we talk about anything for anybody else, we're telling us what God is actually like. Otherwise, we're going to fill it up with all kinds of jacked up ideas. We need the Bible telling us who we are. Otherwise, we're just, that, cult, that vacuum will be filled by whatever the culture tells us. We need to, the Bible telling us what the good life is like. Otherwise, again, we'll fill that void with our own kind of lame ideas. We must go beyond merely having our eyes set in this horizontal position. But if we lift our eyes up, through worshiping together, through reading the Bible, through prayer, for all those kind of super basic things of what it means to follow Jesus. If we lift our eyes up, we may not understand everything, but that lack of understanding won't stop us from going forward and doing what God's calling us to do. Now, the reason often that we don't talk about Jesus is we think someone's gonna ask me something that I won't know, or I'm just gonna come across like somebody who's kind of a crazy person and I won't even know what I'm talking about. And you know what? That might be true. The fact you might need to learn about Jesus, I think we're all in that same boat. None of us has like, you know, that area covered. So we do need to learn, but God still calls us to join in with his mission, regardless of our deficiencies. Our lack of understanding doesn't relieve us from being obedient. And if we wait to understand it all before we act, if we wait to not have fear before we act, we'll just never do anything. And really what people need in this world is not something that they can understand. It's not something they can get a, get a handle over it's something that needs to be beyond their understanding. We need something beyond that for our, for our lives. So if we have faith that if Jesus raised himself from the dead, we can have faith that he will work in your lack, whatever it might be. 
And he loves to work through you. Let's not stop him from working through us. <coughs> now, especially when um, reading about the resurrection, kind of like, oh man, what if I was with these women and saw this, um, this angel? And what if I saw like the resurrected Jesus? Like surely I would have crazy faith in. That would be amazing. What if I, oh, man, imagine if I could just be there. Or why can't God do something in my life that would just completely blow me away and I'll be completely sold out for him? But look how it goes with the disciples. They're afraid. They don't tell anybody. We'd still be stumbling through fear. But the only way I can understand, the only way we can understand is if someone tells us. That's why there was a messenger in the tomb without the angel telling the women what's going on, they would have no idea. So I'm sure we think on some level that being the kind of Christian who tells others about Jesus, that's like Christian plus or like Christian luxury or like Christian second level or whatever the thing might be. But the reality is that to be a fully formed disciple, just like basic fully formed disciple means at times having to tell others. Now at this point in the story, the end of Mark, we do not see fully formed disciples. But in Acts, which is where we're gonna get to in the new year, gonna go through the book of Acts, we see how people become fully formed disciples over time. These women and the rest are now incredibly immature in their faith, but that doesn't stay that way for long. So if you feel like I cannot do this, I'm completely immature, that's fine. Like take heart, like God works with where we are, but they didn't stay immature for long because what is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us for? Like, why is he there? A little sneak peek into Acts. The reason why we have a power of the Holy Spirit working in us is to be witnesses to others. Witnesses use words. They have to tell the truth. That's how they work. If they didn't tell the truth, they wouldn't be a witness or they wouldn't be a good witness. So if we aren't using words, if we aren't living out what it means to be a fully formed disciple, we are experiencing a deficient Christian life. Now, I, I don't say any of this to like hammer you into, you know, feel like you have to now all of a sudden say all sorts of stuff or post on Facebook, all sorts of crazy things or to like guilt trip you. I'm just saying like, this is what the Bible tells us of what it means to follow Jesus. You don't have to have like, some kind of gospel grenade ready to go. You're in a conversation and you're like, you pull the grenade out, you pull the pin, you drop it and you say the churchy weird thing and run away for all the, on the car and it just kind of explodes behind you. You don't have to do that, thankfully. That's not what we're supposed to do. A good, a good witness takes care, listens. So a, a good witness, a witness is someone who not only listens to the person in front of us, but also listens to the Holy Spirit. If, we, if we're only like based on ourselves, we're gonna use words that are feeble. We're not gonna be working in the power that we're called to to the Holy Spirit who knows our fear, knows our lack of understanding actually better than we do, and yet still chooses to work through us. I mean, Redeemer is here today because these disciples in Mark told other disciples who told other disciples and told other disciples told other, and eventually he comes here. These other disciples told other people and they planted a church. And they sent other people who told other people and they planted a church. And eventually somehow that comes to Charlton and Manchester where we are now. The reason why you're here now is because someone used words. Someone, and you can connect all those words all the way back to where we are here in Mark to the beginning of Acts. The reason why people will be taking up these empty seats is because some of us will be able to use the word that the Holy Spirit has given us to bring them into saving knowledge of who Jesus is. So let's all act like the Holy Spirit is actually the third member of the Trinity. I know we say it. I know we say we believe it. But let's like actually really act like that's real because the spirit today works in the same power that he worked then. And through him, we get to bring all the overwhelming mystery of the resurrection to others because the resurrected Jesus is at work within us. Now, if we trust Jesus with our death in the future, surely we can trust him with our life in the present of overcoming a feeling of awkwardness or whatever the thing might be. But in all of this, in all of this, we know that we can't, but God does. We can't handle death, God conquered death. We don't understand life, 
We're alarmed, we're trembling, we're overwhelmed. God conquers our lack of understanding. We're too afraid to tell others about death and life. God conquers our fear. God conquers our inadequacy. So conquering death, conquering a lack of understanding, conquering a fear, conquering inadequacy, this is the new life that we get in Jesus. This is why it matters that Jesus resurrected for us today. I think it's easy for us to understand where we're going in the future, as abstract as that is. But today, this is what Jesus' resurrection gives us now and not one that we have to wait for. We experience it now. And that's what the bread and the cup are all about. Because in this life, we get tastes of that new world to come. It, come, it breaks in from time to time. They are tastes of wonder. And this table is for all of us who are stuck in worry, who want to move to wonder. This table is for all of us who have fear, who have an overwhelming anxiety, who are just completely overcome by a lack of understanding or a lack of feeling like we really have it all together. And we come up, with our open, inadequate hands, and Jesus fills it with his spirit. His is not a spirit of fear. His is a spirit of power. So all of us who surrender to Jesus and experience his life, this table is for us. <clears throat> and as we eat and as we drink, we bring our fearful, inadequate, worried selves up, and we celebrate the wonder of the new life that we have from Jesus. He knows all those things way more than any of us do, and yet he still chooses to work through us. He still chooses to give us a love that we cannot even begin to understand. We sing about it, and that covers a small, tiny percent. We can't, but God does in all things and at all times. Let's pray to him.